have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, actually. We're, we're, we're progressing. We're moving along. We finally got to the fifth chapter. So um, there's a lot of good things before and a lot of good things after. So um, Ephesians chapter 5. If you remember when we started Ephesians, we I pointed out, and I've been pointing out the last uh, few weeks as we've got to the second half, first half of Ephesians, chapters 1, 2, and 3, are primarily doctrinal chapters, okay, dealing with the great truths of the faith. Uh, and there's plenty of practical application being made in those chapters. But chapters 4, 5, and 6 seem to be more of a focus on the application of those truths. Uh, you know, that's what a good sermon should have, not only an exposition and declaration of truth, there needs to be application. Uh, I mentioned this with John Chrysostom when he'd get about halfway through one of his homilies um, in the fifth century. We have, you know, they were written down and you can almost see him there in uh, Hagia Sophia, the, the, the great cathedral of its day. Um, about halfway through his sermon, he'd pause and he'd say, but what does all this mean? <laughs> and then he would start making applications. So it's been a great blessing that God had his sermons preserved, uh, his homilies. And, and uh, we have actually some of them on Ephesians. I, I look at those when I'm prepping for this uh, series. So uh, Chrysostom knew how to make application, and that's very important. So I tried to do that. But in this uh, section we're reading today, Paul makes plenty of application, okay? We just have to expound and set forth clearly what he said, and then hopefully by God's help, we can learn to work this into our daily lives. So uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, we'll begin at the first verse. Therefore, he says, Paul's writing to the Ephesian Christians, verse uh, one, uh, five. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us. And given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator or unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask you now to be with us. Pray that you would quicken us all by your Holy Spirit. Give us hearts to receive ears to hear and minds to accept and to understand what you have declared in the Holy Scriptures. Lord, write it in our hearts and minds that we might remember what you have said. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, it starts off with that word, therefore. We've encountered this a lot in Paul's writings, haven't we? And whenever, you know, the old saying, it, it sounds rather trite, but it is true. When you see the word therefore, you need to ask what it's there for, okay? Uh, and that's an important thing. So why does he say therefore? Well, he's building this on everything that's gone before, but particularly the last few verses, particularly the last verse of the chapter uh, that we've just concluded, chapter 4. 
keep in mind the chapter divisions and verse divisions were added subsequent to the writing of the epistles uh, for purposes of reading in, in Christian assemblies. The uh, chapter divisions, I'm not exactly sure when chapter divisions were introduced into the scriptures, probably sometime around the, between the 10th and the 12th century. Uh, we, know, we do know when the uh, verses were put into the New Testament, and that is in the year 1550, uh, I believe, or 51, when Robert Etienne or Stephanus, uh, uh, and he was a printer of the Greek New Testament, and he, on in a carriage ride from, I'm not sure what city, I think it was from Paris, might have been from Paris to Geneva, or Geneva Strasbourg, or one of those, he took the time as he was riding in the carriage to mark in his unversified Greek New Testament all the verses, or at least the numbers, and so the next time he printed it, he put those in. Some have said that in certain places, it looks like the road, the buggy went down or the carriage went down was a bumpy road because sometimes it's like, why is there a verse division there? Okay, and it's like, well, later on when you get the glory, you can ask uh, Robert Stevens, why why did you do that? And he might tell you, well, you know, I didn't do it on purpose. The buggy hit a rock or something. But uh, so for the most part, they make pretty good sense. So that's why we have verse divisions. Um, actually, the... Uh, Geneva Bible of 1560 was the first English translation to have the verses put in and, and people found, wow, this is so much a help in studying the Bible because you, they used to have the chapters broke up, in, you know, instead of verses, it was chapter 5A and then about half, a little bit more, B, C, and D. And if it was a long chapter, it had a few more. So you had a general section where a verse was, or a word was being quoted. And so with the verses, it was a lot easier to zero in on uh, what you were studying. And then you could do cross-references. And so we, we live with this every day. Uh, we don't even think about it, but it's really, what would it be, about not quite 500 years ago, which historically speaking, it's not that long. But we have this today. So in verse uh, 32 of chapter 4, Paul concludes in talking about the, the moral and ethical behavior of Christians. He does say, in verse 32, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted. Remember, we talked about that. The word kind comes to mean be good. Krestai, uh, or krestos is the word that's used there. And um, it means kindness or good, to be good. So he's saying be kind to one another, tenderhearted. And that's literally, uh, you know, the King James says having bowels of mercy. Uh, Splanknoi is your, your, your guts, literally. But it, your emotional center is what it's saying should be good toward one another, okay? I say some of the um, some of the psychology of the Bible with the terms that are used, uh, we're a little unsure of in our modern age, like when it talks about, um, the, you know, your the, the heart and reins, that means literally, David talks about that, loving God, and uh, my you know, your reins, that's your kidneys, okay? That's what that means, and in the original, that's the word that's there. So he's saying be be good-hearted is a good way in English uh, speech to, to render the meaning of that Greek word. So be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. And, and that the root of that word is the word gracious. Be gracious to each other. Even as God in Christ literally was gracious toward you. And, and the word forgiveness is there because it does imply that. Being gracious with a view to forgiving. So Paul's reminding them that you're the objects of mercy. 
Remember the, the story that Jesus told of the man that owed, basically, we would say today, like, you know, $20 million, and they brought him before the king, and he said, I, I can't pay you. So the king realized that. He could have had him thrown into prison, but he said, uh, all right, I'll forgive you. So he forgave the debt, and the fellow went out and basically found someone that owed him about $100, and the guy said, I, I can't pay you. And he, he, the guy that had just been forgiven by the king grabbed that guy by the throat said, pay that thou owest, and then he had him thrown into debtor's prison. When the king found out, he called the guy back to him and said, whoa, wait a minute, I just forgave you everything, and you're doing this to someone? Apparently, you don't understand the mercy you just received. And Jesus said, and the king had that person thrown into uh, debtor's prison and said he's not coming out till it's all paid. In other words, he's not coming out. So Jesus said, you know, except you forgive others, you know, you're not forgiven. Uh, that doesn't mean that you earn forgiveness by forgiving, but it means if you have a, what we call a gracious heart and you forgive people, uh, that shows that you've been forgiven. You know, you, we, we show mercy because we've been shown mercy. That's what Paul's saying here. But Paul's not saying this is, you know, you've been shown mercy and that's why. He said you've been shown mercy, so start showing mercy or keep doing it. Be gracious to each other. Treat each other kindly. Don't hold grudges. You don't need to have you know, uh, your sins thrown into your face after they've been forgiven by God. Uh, and we don't need to be throwing other people's, you know, sins into their face, reminding them of their sinful background every time we see them. Uh, we need to forgive. We need to let go. We need to be gracious. That's why he says, therefore, in verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, he says, be imitators of God as dear children. Why imitate Well, he just told you what God did for you, even as God in Christ forgave you. So you imitate God as dear children, literally beloved children. Agape toy, okay, is the word there from that word agape. As, as beloved children, children who are loved. You belong to God. Uh, John says in John, 1 John 3, you know, beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. Uh, but we know that when he appears... We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. But John says we're like him now. In that sense, we are presently adopted by God. We are his children. Uh, he has caused us to be born again. He is conforming us to his image. You know, children generally, you know, natural born children have a tendency to look like their parents. And that's sometimes that's a good thing for the kids. Sometimes it's a little iffy. But for the most part, uh, children are going to, if they don't fall, look at you physically or look like you, they're going to start looking like you on a moral basis. And the same thing is true of God's children. When God saves us, he adopts us, and his spirit is at work in us. And in Romans chapter 8, it says we're being conformed. Actually, it says we've been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So God is taking away in your life everything that doesn't look like Jesus. And he's adding or creating in you those things that do look like Jesus. Okay, if I can use that uh, manner of speech. Uh, he's conforming you. That doesn't mean you're going to like start looking like some of the pictures people paint of what they think Jesus might have looked like. But it means ethically, morally, spiritually, inwardly, you start thinking God's thoughts after him, as Abraham Kuyper used that term and others after him. Uh, you begin to think like God, not you know, not like I'm the Almighty or some foolishness like that, really for a human to think that way. Well, you begin to think in terms of compassion, in ter terms of justice, in terms of what is right, what is good, what is pleasing to God. And Paul said that, remember when he told us what to think about, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are good, if there's any virtue, if there's any good report. 
How does that come about? By the Holy Spirit in you. So you become imitators of God as dear children. And well, what does that actually mean? And by the way, note that Paul's not suggesting this. He's not saying that, you know, if you have time, you might want to, you know, start acting like you're supposed to. This is a command. When he says be imitators of God, that word be there in the Greek is genesne. And that's a command. That's an imperative. He's saying you must be. It's not optional. You're a Christian. Okay. You have to start acting the way God wants you to act. You must become an imitator of God. Uh, the, the word uh, mimetai, it's where we get the word mimic. All right. Sometimes, you know, it's an irritating thing children do sometimes where they mimic people. But in this sense, it's a good idea. You need to mimic God. And it, it means morally, ethically, spiritually, you need to be a follower of God. You say, well, what exactly does that do? Well, that's followed with another imperative in verse two, walk. That is in the imperative. That is a present imperative. And by the way, the nice thing about both of these is, remember I've talked in the past, There's, you, know, you get your Greek lesson today. There's two types of commands in the New Testament. One is an aorist imperative, and that means start doing something you haven't been doing or start doing again something that you used to do but stopped. That's an aorist. And then the present imperative the idea of present tense, and that's keep doing something you've already been doing. And you get some insight into the Ephesians here, because when Paul writes to them, he uses a present imperative, both the word be or become imitators of God as dear children. And when he says and walk, that also is a present imperative. So they were doing these things. They were imitating God. They were walking in love. And Paul's telling them, or I should say the Holy Spirit is telling them through Paul, keep doing this, keep doing it, do it more, all right? Grow in this is what he's saying, and walk in love, keep walking in love. So he's telling him, so far you're doing pretty good. If you remember in Revelation, because there's more than one epistle to the Ephesians in the New Testament. Remember in the book of Revelation, that's the first church that gets addressed. Uh, if you go back and read Revelation uh, chapter 3, you'll find that that's where Jesus addresses them. I believe it's chapter 3. Um, and he tells the Ephesian church that uh, he had things there that they had things going on that he approved of but they had one major problem he said you've left your first love uh, and he calls them into repent of that they had all the doctrine straight uh, they had everything good they tested those who claimed to be apostles and were not and found them to be liars they hated the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. We don't really know much about them. The word itself, Nico, means conquer. Laetans means people. So they said, well, it's either the conquerors of the people or the idea of the people conquering. Whatever it was, these were either a libertarian type group or uh, they were a hierarchical group, you know, where the clergy would rule over the people. Or it could mean just, uh, you know, that every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Whatever their doctrine was, if the name... Uh, is any indication of it, they were very bad. And the Ephesians had figured that out, but they'd lost their first love. So Paul's exhortation here was received, but within a generation, because it was this was written probably around 58 or so 54 to 58 AD, Revelation most likely was written around 90 uh, AD. That's the testimony of history in spite of some modern commentators um, who want to say it was earlier. But if when it was written, within a generation, the Ephesians had let that slip. So this admonition was timely and it was necessary. 
because of the following generation had lost it. So he says, keep walking in love. Well, in what way? What's that mean? Well, he tells him, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Now, he doesn't mean you need to go out and get crucified for other people so you can somehow bear their sins. That's what he's saying. Jesus did that for us. But he is saying that Christ, as John says elsewhere, um, he loved his own even to the uttermost. We need to learn what that means. Walk in love as Christ also has loved us. There was no measure to his love. He didn't say, well, I've been nice to you for, you know, three years now, and you haven't responded exactly the way I want you to, so that's going to stop. Jesus doesn't do that. Paul's saying, you need to love unconditionally. That's really what this means. You know, sometimes we hear the word agape, and that's the word being used here when it talks about love. Um, he said, when he says walk in love, it's literally peripatete uh, in agape, okay? So walk in, in agape, in love, and that's generally understood to mean unconditional love. It's the love that God has for us. Remember when Jesus kept asking Peter after the resurrection, after Peter denied him three times, Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? And Jesus used the word agape. And Peter said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. But Peter used a different word. He used the word phileo, which means uh, affection or brotherly love. He wouldn't boast of having an unconditional love the same way God loves Peter, Jesus asked him a second time, and Peter answered again. Jesus used agape. Peter used uh, phileo. The third time, though, it says in our English Bibles uh, that Peter was grieved because Jesus asked him a third time, Peter, do you love me? And the, the Greek text is, do you love me? Do you really love me? And the, the word Jesus used that time was phileo. Do you really have affection for me? He, Peter denied that he even knew Jesus three times. He denied it with swearing and oaths. And that's when Peter said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus told him, feed my sheep. Jesus restored him back to his office and to fellowship. So the Lord is gracious. Well, there's, there's a, we see how Jesus walked, don't we? He confronted Peter in a loving way and then restored fellowship. So sometimes that's what we need to do. So he said, Christ laid down his life for us. You know, 1 John 3.16, I've talked about this before. Everybody knows John 3.16. Uh, we need to also know First John, uh, John 3.16. And First John 3.16 is that um, by this we have come to know love, the, love, the love, literally love, because he on our behalf laid down his life. And so we ought also on behalf of the brethren to lay down our own lives. You know, John 3.16 is about Christ laying down his life for us. First John 3.16 is we ought to learn to do that. What does that mean to lay down your life for others? Well, this is what Paul's calling us to. This is what God is calling us to. And so that we don't get caught up on other things, he's letting us know then right after this, here's some things that will really mess you up from doing that. So he talks about first sexual sins, and then he talks about a greedy life. He's not talking about prosperity. You know, if you work hard, you're going to prosper. You can do that and fear God, okay? Scripture speaks to, you know, uh, rich men. I believe it was Clement of Alexandria, one of his books that he wrote. And this is in the early second century. We still have it. And it's called, Who is that rich man that will be saved? You know, because remember when the rich young ruler came to Jesus, uh, Jesus said to him, uh, because the fellow came and he said, Lord, what must I do to have eternal life? So Jesus reiterated to him the commandments, but they all the second table of the law, except for the 10th commandment about coveting. And the young man hearing all those other commandments said, oh, I've done all those from my youth. Those were all outward commandments. And then Jesus said this specifically to that young man. He said, 
good. He said, now go and sell everything you have and give to the poor and follow me having taken up the cross. And it says at this word, he became sorrowful when he heard the word cross and he went away sorrowing. It does say Jesus loved the young man. So there's hope for that fellow. I think we'll see him in glory. I don't think that's the end of the story there. Uh, but then Jesus said, how hardly shall those who have riches enter into the kingdom of heaven. And the apostles were surprised at this. They said, well, who then can enter? And then Jesus said, well, oh, he also added, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And there's been a whole lot of talk about what does that phrase mean. If you just take it literally, it's like, it's, kind of, it's somewhat absurd. Well, the absurdity of someone that won't let go of their riches uh, for the kingdom of God. I mean, giving it to God first and foremost, or doesn't see their wealth as from God. Uh, well, you know, you can covet your own property. That's what that young man did. He didn't hold it as from God. So he went away sorrowful. Uh, very, very similar to the apostle Paul. There's some argument to be made that that might've been the apostle Paul, uh, but scripture doesn't say that. So we'll just surmise a little bit. Okay. That he was either like Paul or probably knew him. But he went away because he was covetous. He coveted his own wealth. And how do you do that? You do that by not holding it as a gift from God and as a stewardship. You know, if your wealth is a stewardship from God, whether you lose it or however God directs you to use it, well, you're doing it according to his word, what he says. Now, if some preacher comes along and tries to talk you out of your wealth, that's not, that's not what we're talking about here, okay? That's why some of these televangelists and others are, they know how to pump money. You know, you send them a nickel, you're going to be flooded with letters for the next 10 years uh, asking for more donations. Um, scripture warns about that. In the early church, they said, if someone comes to you and claims to be a prophet, this is in the Didache, which was a really early first century document that's been preserved. So if someone comes to you and claims to be a prophet, that is, you know, a preacher or one who has God's word, you're to receive them and you hear what they have to say. But if they say, thus saith the Lord, give me money, say that's a false prophet, Get throw them out. Uh, that's all the way back in the early church. If people listen to that today, uh, things would be a little different, I think, among uh, many Christians. Covetousness, so fornication and uncleanness. Fornication is a sexual sin, generally considered outside of marriage, but it, it actually is the word sometimes translated harlotry. Anything that's immoral on that level, okay? Disrespectful of marriage. If you're married, act like you're married. If you're single, act like you're single. Paul's saying, you know, you can't cross those lines. You need to be a covenant keeper. And your body, again, you know, all your wealth belongs to God. You belong to God. Your body belongs to God. You can't use it any way you want to. And you better not be using other people because the Bible says, uh, literally, it's kind of strong language, you know, but it says, uh, Whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Marriage is honorable and all in the bed undefiled, but whoremongers uh, and adulterers, God will judge. I'm sure some of the modern translations soften that up a bit. Um, but fornication and all uncleanness, that means anything that tends toward sexual sin. Or covetousness. It's interesting. He, he lists greediness in the same way. And this word covetousness here in the original, it's, it's a word that means grasping or greediness. Covetousness. Let it not even be named among you. In other words, this should be so foreign to your association as a church. It shouldn't even be named among you. You shouldn't have to deal with this as saints, people that are sanctified. They're separated unto God. That's what the word saint means. Um, it shouldn't even be mentioned. It shouldn't even be named among you as is fitting for saints. 
You're a holy people. The Bible says without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. And so Paul's saying here, God has called us to holiness. These filthy things, these ugly things, they shouldn't be in your life. If you're being tempted in that direction in our society, it's hard to avoid temptation, you know, at least externally. They're always throwing stuff at us and using it in advertisement and other things. Anyone that's on the Internet knows you have to be careful. And parents, you absolutely have to supervise your children using the Internet. If you don't, you are negligent criminally in God's eyes, I believe. You have got to watch your children's use of the Internet because there is so much dangerous stuff there for youth and older people. We need to be very careful in that. So it's not even to be named among us as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, that is just the, you know, just the characteristic, you know, ungodliness. And, you know, again, the idea of immorality is included in that. Nor foolish talking, you know, jokes that are inappropriate. Um, or coarse jesting. And actually that word coarse jesting, it's, it's interesting. That word itself uh, is, is not always a bad word. I mentioned one time, you know, the word lust, believe it or not, is uh, sometimes used in the New Testament, the original epithumia for intense desire, it's used in a good way. You know, Jesus said, with desire have I desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Use the word epithumia. So having an intense desire is not bad. Paul said, if a man desires the office of a bishop or overseer, he desires a good work. Again, the word epithumia there, intense desire, it's good. It's just like a, a, a river course, though. It's great until it overflows its banks and it can be destructive. And so intense desire when it's in the right direction can be a really good thing. And we are people of desire. You know, uh, I've mentioned this before. We're not like, you know, the Buddhists that try to empty themselves of all desire. And they got to work real hard to do that. But as Christians, we know we men, all men actually are creatures of desire. It's either running in the right channels or the wrong ones. We're to avoid that. Uh, and coarse jesting uh, has to do with verbal abuse, basically. It, it's, it's uh, like I said, the word utropalia is the word that's used for that. And uh, utropalia actually can be a good thing. Aristotle talked about it as a virtue. And it was the, the ability to have pleasant conversation. But it took on a slightly different meaning, and it does clearly here. It means jesting at the expense of others. Okay, trying to make someone else look like a fool or saying something to someone publicly, you know, with a view to just embarrassing them or bringing shame upon them. Plus, that's not the way Christians should talk to each other. Okay, um, so these things are to be avoided, which are not fitting. It's just not that people that walk in love, they shouldn't be doing that to other people. It's just, so what do you do? Well, don't use your mouth incorrectly. Use it correctly and start with this, but rather giving a thanks. And then he warns us. He says, this isn't, again, this is not optional. He says, for this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater. So a person who's greedy and graspy, it's idolatry because they're putting something before God. They're looking at, I, I must own this. I must have it. Okay, a person who's greedy and grasping or covetous is an idolater. The people that are like that with no break, uh, the person like that has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. A person that's given to those things, that's not a Christian. So Paul says, you know, Christians may struggle with sin, but if that's the, the character of your life, that's a clear indication that you've never been born again, that you've never had a regenerating work of the Holy Spirit done in your heart. 
So we're to take heed to that. In First uh, John chapter 3, um, he warns about, John does warn about those who continue on in sin. He says in um, verse 7, uh, note this, this is First John chapter 3. It's very similar to what we're reading in Paul's writings here, with a little bit of a commentary, you might say, on it. Little children, he says, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous. It doesn't mean like you're practicing because you're trying to figure it out, you know. Uh, it means you continue doing it. You're trying, and righteousness means you're trying to do what is right before God, okay? We're declared righteous by grace, apart from our works. God, the Holy Spirit, is working in us so that we learn to do what is right before God. The person who practices that shows that they've had a change in their life. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. Why? Because they're imitators of God. See, this makes perfectly good sense, and it fits together wonderfully. But no, that he who sins, and that's a present tense idea there, the one who is continually sinning, never breaking with it, is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. Now, John has just said in chapter 1, if we say we have no sin, we say we have no sin. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Okay, So John's not claiming here sinlessness. All right, because he's already dealt with that in chapter one. But he's saying whoever, can, and again, it's present tense, whoever continues practicing sin. Note that whoever continues practicing sin uh, is not who he says he is. All right. Um, he who sins, that is, continues in sin, verse eight, is of the devil. We saw that. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. Again, Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. That is, doesn't continue in it. They may fall, but they get back up. It says in Scripture, a righteous man falls six times, but the Lord lifts him up. You might fall down six times, but you're going to get up seven. Why? Paul says in Romans chapter 6, writing to true Christians, he said, sin shall not have dominion over you because you're not under the law, but under grace. That means God doesn't deal with you according to your success in being sinless. He deals with you according to his son, Jesus Christ, who lived a righteous life and died for your sins. That's how God deals with you. So if you're trusting in Jesus and struggling against temptation or you have a besetting sin, keep going to Jesus. John said, if we confess our we, the apostle includes himself in that. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed, that is, he's talking about the Holy Spirit being born again, his image, his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. It's the Spirit of God working in him. The Holy Spirit's not going to let you go on and on in sin. By the way, Hebrews is very clear, isn't it? And even when we have the Lord's Supper, uh, you know, if we, if we sin and we belong to the Lord, what will happen? He'll chasten us. Paul says if you're without chastisement, then you're illegitimate and not sons. So Christians do sin. They shouldn't, but they do. They're still in the body. The body's not yet been regenerated. The spirit has been, but we still struggle with our, you know, appetites and lust, and that affects our emotions and things like that and our attitudes. Uh, 
but we've been born again. So there is a change in us. But if we sin, we get chastened and then we learn to hate sin, not just from the punishment, but because we begin to see that it really is ugly and we want it out of our lives. So his seed remains in him as God's seed remains in him. And he cannot sin because he's been born of God. Note what John says. This is, you can't get any clearer than this. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. You can know whether a person is born again or not. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Pure and simple, period. Nor is he who does not love his brother. Wait a minute, what? He brings in that love thing again, huh? If you want to know, somebody says, well, if somebody's doing bad things, yeah, and also someone who doesn't love his brother. So love is the defining difference between a person who's been born again. And when I say love, it's within the context of God's commands because love gets ill-defined sometimes, you know. Uh, love is keeping covenant with others and being honest and truthful and wanting their best, okay. Uh, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life. Okay, we talk about that. How do you know that? Well, John says, we know it because we love the brethren. So you can have a little test right here, each one of us. Do I really love my brothers and sisters in the Lord? And if I don't, I need to go to God and confess that sin and say, Lord, I don't think I love them as I should. I think every one of us could say that, all right? Uh, but Lord, help teach me this. I, I want to honor you. I want to. I love you, Lord. I, I thank, I'm so thankful for what you did. Teach me what it means to love your people, to love one another, as you've said. Lord, I want to. I want to do this. He says, "This is the mark of being born again. This is how we know we've passed from death to life. You want to know if you're saved? Because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death." Then he goes on and talks about that. The final thing he says, or at least for this section, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Wow. So if you, we understand that just simply not loving, John says, that's a serious thing. But then if he is over and if somebody has hatred in their heart, well, he says, that's murder. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So it goes on. So you might want to read First John this afternoon. Uh, but we see this back to Ephesians. We see this idea of following God, being imitators of God and, and following him. And then, so Paul gives this warning in verse 5. And then he adds this. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words. Because you can always find some quack, some spiritual charlatan who's going to tell you it doesn't matter how you live. Second uh, Peter warns about this and elsewhere where they turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. They say, oh, you know, you're saved by grace, so it's okay if you, you know, fornicate. It's okay if you, you know, do all these other things that the Bible absolutely forbids. And it's not like, well, if I don't do those things, I get to go to heaven. No, beloved, if you've been born again, you're not going to want to do those things. Okay? It's, we're not saved by our works. Okay? You can't be like the Pharisee. Well, you know, I thank you, God. You know, I've kept all your commandments. I think I'm not like other men etc. Jesus said that guy, when he was done praying, it says he prayed to himself. When he was done praying, he wasn't right with God. So it's like, well, I don't do all those things, so I guess I'm okay. The question is, do you love the brethren? And by that means your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you love Do you love the church? We can say it that way, if you understand. Not, you know, we're not talking about institutions, we're talking about people. 
do you love the church? Do you love God's people? You know, I got in trouble one time because I said, you know, it always amazes me when people say they, they love the church. They just can't stand the people that are in it. Okay. It's like, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Okay. If you love someone, you're happy to be with them. All right. That should motivate you to being in church, you know, being with God's people, showing hospitality, etc. These are things we can work on. All right. Because nobody has us down perfectly. But Paul in writing to the Ephesians is letting them know. He says, don't let anyone deceive you with empty words. Don't let someone tell you. That you can be in fornication, that you can be involved in uncleanness, that your tongue can say mean, hateful words to people. And it's still okay because, well, God understands. If you've done that, you can ask for forgiveness. But don't think if you continue doing those kinds of things that you have God's approval, at least on that behavior. And it could very well, these warnings are serious, could be an indication that you've never really been born again. If that's the case, then go to Jesus. He says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you peace. So know what he says here. Do not let anyone deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. There's only two kinds of people in the world. The sons of God, I mean the children, sons and daughters of God by adoption. And the sons of disobedience. The one, they're going to be with the Lord. The others are still in their sins. And they will go to hell, all right, to be punished. The Bible teaches that. So what he says in the next verse is, therefore, do not be partakers with them. Okay, the Bible says also don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That's why Christians should marry only in the Lord. But here he's saying, don't if you have people that claim to be Christians elsewhere, it says if somebody's doing these things, you have to be kind and gentle to them, but you can't hang around with them. You have to tell them, I can't be with you if you're doing these wicked things or trying to promote it. Uh, so... We have before us what it means to be imitators of God. Paul's going to go on and make further application in uh, domestic areas, in the family, and in our business lives, and all kinds of stuff, okay? Because the Bible speaks to every area of life. And praise God for that. So, beloved, we've been called to be imitators of God as dear children and to walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us. A sweet-smelling offering, uh, an offering and sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling room. God was well-pleased with Jesus. And because of Jesus, beloved, with all your struggles in Christ, God is well-pleased with you. He loves you in spite of your failures. So don't shrink back and go, oh, I've, I've sinned against God. I guess he doesn't want me. Don't be like Adam hiding in the garden. Okay? Uh, do what John says. Go to him. Say, Lord, I've sinned against you. Remember the prodigal son? His father didn't slap him when he came home. His father hugged him and said, it's fine. He slew the fatted calf. He had a party. He was so happy. So if you're struggling or you go, Lord, I, I've sinned against you. I'm not what I should be. I don't even know if I'm saved. Come to Jesus. Call upon him. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So don't shrink back. The devil will tell you, oh, you can't go to Jesus. You're a sinner. Just don't listen to the devil. Go to Jesus. And say, Lord, please forgive me. Make me to be the man or the woman you want me to be. Let's do that. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, even though we're not everything we should be, we thank you that Jesus is everything he should be and everything he should be for us. So we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you can take us who are sinners, who still have struggles, temptations, and multiple failures, Lord, in, in living righteous and godly lives, that we can come to you, Lord, and there is forgiveness and cleansing and, and you do create in us those things you desire to see. And we ask you to do that. Continue that work. Fill our hearts to overflowing with love for you and for others. For we ask all these things, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.